Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from Ohio University about the opioid epidemic. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Karina Nova presents segments about efforts to expand broadband in Ohio. Information on the state income tax cut Ohioans are getting and the impact of the ending of the federal government's $300 add-on to unemployment benefits. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with someone from Prevent Blindness Ohio about issues that agency is facing. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me via Zoom, Dan Skinner. He is a health policy professor at Ohio University's Medical School in Dublin. He's also the author of a book called Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us uh, a little bit about first your position with the medical school, uh, what you do and and what that uh, situation there is. Yeah, so I'm a political scientist by training, and I am a health policy professor at OU's um, osteopathic medical school at the Dublin campus. My job is to make sure that our medical students, our future physicians, aren't just um, you know informed uh, fully on the clinical side of things, but also understand the policy terrain that they are operating in and will will be entering into. Which obviously opioids and, and addiction is a big piece of that story here in Ohio. This whole situation with opioids over the last uh, 10 years or so has really changed the game, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about the issues that we were totally steeped in in 2019 before anybody knew the words COVID or 19, uh, you know, opioid addiction and, and not just opioid addiction, addiction generally and thinking about our mental health and addiction services and supports here in Ohio it was a big issue that kind of got knocked off the radar screen in, in March of 2020. Do you feel like uh, with some of the laws that have changed that Ohio is getting a grip on it or the nation is getting a grip on it? Well, it depends what you mean by a grip. I mean, these things are complex social phenomena. You know, uh, uh, isolation is isolation, and we have a lot of it here in Ohio. Uh, the story early on, um, you know, in the early aughts of, you know, after 2000, was really around our rural areas and, and a lot of focus on, you know, Portsmouth and some of the surrounding areas down there. And it's continually morphed as policymakers and others, health professionals have tried to get their hands around it, including the medical education world that I operate in. Um, so yeah, for, for certainly um, this is a, the kind of thing where uh, the opioid addiction crisis in 2015 is different than 2021 and paying attention to it is what uh, you know, my job is and people who work in this field uh, are, are doing on a daily basis. One of the things that we heard early on was that a lot of people were getting hooked because they had had surgery or some sort of an accident, an injury, went on the prescription painkillers, got hooked, and then when the prescriptions end, they went to the street and got heroin. Is mm-hmm. that viable, and is it still happening today like it was you know, years ago? Well, that's the way the story was told at a certain point of the crisis. Uh, That's the story that Sam Canonis talks about in his book, Dreamland, which lots of Ohioans have read, uh, you know, of the moving from shutting down the pill mills and the prescription crisis, and then the move towards illicit drugs. And uh, of course, fentanyl is something that we see a lot of in Ohio and have. Um, Today, you know, the fentanyl is still on the the uptick, but we also have a a lot of uh, non-opioid drugs that have uh, you know, increasingly been prevalent in, in emergency rooms around the state, such as methamphetamine. 
you're the author of a book called Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my uh, colleague at Ohio University, Berkeley Franz, and I, um, in, in 2018, uh, set out to collect stories of Ohioans. Uh, we have 22 of the 88 counties represented in there. Just kind of different perspectives, snapshots of people's lived uh, experiences, um, but also professional experiences with loved ones, with themselves, um, you know, and uh, the, the book has um, really cast a, a, a light on a piece of it. I mean, obviously, a book can only do so much, but we have uh, accounts from law enforcement, from sports coaches, from people who are have dealt with addiction in, in one way or another in their own lives, uh, lots of families, parents, things like that. Um, to just try to humanize the issue. Sometimes when we think about the, the data points, you know, the, these number of uh, overdoses out of 100,000 people, it's a little hard to get your head around that. But when you listen to the stories of people who have uh, gone through these experiences and still are going through them, it can really, I, I think, uh, help people to understand what we're dealing with. The circumstances that some of these folks end up in, it seemingly changes their character. It might turn them into thieves when that might be the last thing in the world they would ever do. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, whenever you're um, confronted with somebody who's in the throes of addiction, you're dealing with somebody who is sick, somebody who is in the throes of addiction. I mean, they, they are not making decisions that they would want to make if they were not in that state. You know, and I think that's why you know, law enforcement, for example, have had to really retrain and, and, and re-understand re how they think about this issue. Parents who thought they would never find themselves in such a situation. You know, these parents said, oh, we did everything right. And then look at us now. You know, I, it, it's, it's, it's humbling to have to take a step back and to realize that you're not special, that this, this disease can afflict anybody at any time. And um, I've met lots of people who went through a transition uh, where they, they look at it in an entirely different way than they did just even a couple of years ago. Talking with Dan Skinner, he's a health policy professor at Ohio University's Medical School in Dublin. The problem with an addiction like this is, I guess it would be similar to the way alcoholics talk about their situation, is that even if, they, if they're away from it for five or 10 years, there's always that fear or that looming factor that it could come back if they make a wrong move? Yeah, part, part of the uh, recovery process, and you know, I've talked with lots of people in recovery, um, is really disrupting your social networks, um, you know, the, the places you used to go. Uh, lots of people have to live in new places and establish new social groups because it's easy for many anyway, to, to end up back there where they started. And, and really that's one of the amazing stories, you know, that comes out in the book and, and other work that I've done, which is you never know when, when one moment might be the end, um, you know, or you never know when one moment might be the, the, the thing that sparks a successful recovery. So trying to understand what works and what doesn't um, and to focus our policies on the things that do work is one of the big challenges. One of the things that Ohio has embarked on is this Don't Live in Denial, Ohio, which uh, has a, a, a huge focus on communication within a family between parents and kids. Yeah, so the, the Denial, Ohio campaign and also many others. I mean, the Attorney General, I'm involved with a group that's thinking about um, health professions training. And, you know, we, we needed to get rid of stigma first and foremost. Um, and stigma not just from, um, you know, families and but the health professionals there was extraordinary stigma in my profession 
of trying to understand what it meant that somebody, um, you know, ha had an addiction, was dealing with an addiction. Um, Denial, Ohio kind of identified one of those problems, which is that there were pretty formidable segments of our society who just kind of thought that this would never be them, that this was something that afflicted other people, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Where do you see this going? Uh, I mean, I, I think the pandemic has really kind of knocked everything out of whack, and, and it yeah. seems like even statistics on just about everything about everyday life are going to be spiking one way or the other when you look back in a few years at what 2020 was like. Yeah, we're, we're a vulnerable, isolated society already. You know, even, even though we have Facebook and these things, you know, what we need is genuine human connectivity and, and um, people to reach out to, to, to feel connected. And, you know, the pandemic, just at, at a moment when Ohio thought it was getting a foothold with um, certain parts of its addiction crisis, there was COVID and we, for many months, uh, May, uh, March through May, June, we knew it was bad. We didn't know how bad because as you remember, as your listeners remember, everybody was just trying to get through that period, just trying to, to see what was going to be next. Um, we now know that uh, in 2020, we had the most um, opioid addiction related deaths, overdose deaths than we had in any, any year in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, it was bad. And it's, it's still bad, but obviously this waxes and wanes with our ability to connect with people, to reach out to them. And we're really lucky that we have healthcare professionals around the state who, who do this daily, even though they're underfunded and there are big regional disparities in terms of our ability to do this. Have the counseling programs uh, helping these folks, are they getting connected again physically rather than in a virtual format these days? Yeah, more and more. I mean, yeah, some of the support groups, especially, uh, you know, like AA kind of groups and NA groups, you know, are meeting in person more and more. And that's really important to, to many people uh, with, with their addiction um, and getting back, getting people back into the offices of primary care, providers of various sorts, um, you know, federally qualified health centers, community health centers around the state are doing some of the most amazing work that we almost never realize, um, you know, people who don't have a lot of money to pay for fancy services, um, you know, our services and supports remain really mixed. I mean, if you're in rural parts of Ohio, you, you're kind of in trouble. Um, you know, our, the, the main supports in our state are still clustered around the urban centers. So that's something we have to do better at, and we're trying to find ways to do at, but, uh, you know, we, we know that this is far from over and that COVID has likely, um, you know, undone some of the good work we were doing already. And that rural-urban difference uh, also present with uh, even just like vaccines. I mean, there's just a, if you look at a, a map of counties around Ohio and the percentage of people that have been vaccinated, you've got counties like Adams down along the Ohio River where it's still only about a quarter of them. Yeah, I mean, everybody liked to talk, you know, I'm a New Yorker originally, so we all know about blue and red states. But once you look at a state like Ohio, you realize the story is really about urban and, and, um, and, and rural and looking at the disparities within the state. And all, of course, it's also black, white, right? It's the right. racial disparities. Um, you know, in our book, we talk about how LGBTQ folks, um, you know, their special needs within the area of addiction services. So you know, we, we need to be really fine-grained about this, um, and that's going to require funding. Uh, you know, 
Governor DeWine at one point in, during the COVID crisis early on said, we are realizing how poorly funded our public health services are and we're paying for it. And I kind of thought, well, that's true of COVID, but we, that's, that's been true for addiction and mental health supports for a long time. So our state's gonna have to make a decision uh, whether we wanna be preventive or whether we wanna you know, keep chasing this continually. Talking with Dan Skinner, health policy professor at Ohio University's Medical School in Dublin. But when you look at health policy, uh, public health policy, public health agencies have really been uh, tested and tried over the last year and a half. I mean, look at somebody like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who never would have guessed that he would be a political figure, you know, right, right. The, the way that he's become one now, uh, completely unwittingly. It's tough these days, and, and the scrutiny and the skepticism is way up because of the, the general nature, I think, of the way people are politically anymore. Oh, sure. And, you know, of course, we were really lucky here in this state to have Dr. Amy Acton, um, you know, for the first six months or so of, of the pandemic. Right. Um, and, her, you know, her leadership was uh, celebrated nationally. The governor got extremely high marks, uh, at least for the, the early uh, aspects of the response. And, of course, we have a pretty nasty politics going on here with you know, some people are calling for us to learn lessons about how we really need to um, think more about and fund uh, better public health. And then you have other people in the state legislature, for example, who are passing legislation that, uh, you know, would seem to gut the public health uh, powers of the Department of Public. So we have a whole conversation going on here. And, uh, you know, caught in the middle are just the numbers, right, which is um, we have real people who have real needs, and it's not clear that we can meet them as long as we're having this other kind of conversation, just about the, the political conversation that happens in this state. It's interesting that, uh, you know, that a lot of people think that the medical industry uh, bears quite a bit of responsibility for the opioid crisis. And yet that has not seemed to enter the kind of discussion about it the way COVID has with vaccines and not vaccines and where the virus came from and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there have been big lawsuits with Purdue Pharma and other and the other companies, um, and you know, money forthcoming to the state. Uh, big questions about what we do with that money when we do get it within Ohio, and where we focus it, and who gets to spend it. Um, you know, but but uh, certainly there's enough blame to go around. The the bigger question I have, I mean, the medical industry certainly has a lot to answer to, and they always do. I mean, that's a part of the conversation. But also we're retraining medical students now and training them differently to make sure that the next generation, the students I'm training right now at Ohio University and my colleagues and I work with, um, they will be different kinds of physicians in this state. They um, think about prescriptions differently than those who came before them. Um, frankly, some of them are really scared to prescribe, right? They don't, they want to make sure that they're, what they're doing is right. The problem is, is that we don't have too many alternatives to many of these prescriptions and you know, no healthcare professional sees a patient to send them home in pain, right? Every, every healthcare professional wants to send their patient home a bit better off with some relief uh, than when they entered their office. So this is a conversation that we're only really starting to figure out how to have in a way that is actually doing right by patients and, and certainly getting, you know, the money from those companies as those lawsuits wind down um, could be useful as long as we don't waste it like we did with for example, a lot of the money from the smoking lawsuits and things like that in the past. And that issue of prescribing, that really is, uh, even though it's, a, from what I understand, a, a pretty small percentage of people who do become addicted to uh, these kinds of drugs, everyone that you prescribe to is, is a potential 
call in the middle of the night about something that's going on. Yeah, we really just don't know. I mean, that, that's the problem is that it's very hard to tell. Um, you know, so what we need are better practices and also alternatives, right? Uh, thinking about different ways to work with pain that uh, aren't about prescribing opioids. But then again, the, the other problem is that many people just need these opioids to function, right? There's a discussion in the disability rights community about folks who have certain kinds of um, conditions that just really require something to even function. And you know, we don't want to be using too blunt of an instrument here. We want to be able to look at patients and say, well, what is your context? What do you need? And what tools do we have? And that's where we kind of, we look at the toolbox right now and there aren't too many alternatives there, um, certainly that are legal. You know, the marijuana people think they have an answer to something. And there are a bunch of people kind of at the, on the doorstep saying, well, we have an alternative. And that has to go through a process to make sure it's safe. Talking with Dan Skinner, health policy professor at Ohio University and author of Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. From your book, when you talk about uh, some of these uh, situations that folks have been in, I'm sure that you had issues of, you know, families trying to fix it with tough love and, and others who did everything they could, maybe even were uh, enabling somebody. Can you give us a couple of stories on, on some of the things that you found around Ohio? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One, one is, obviously, anybody who's a parent, but not even if they're a parent, people understand that one of the hardest things you can do is to have to kick a family member out of the house. Um, and, you know, I think, Intuitively, lots of us would say, oh, God, I would never do that. I would like, well, talk to these folks and see what they were trying to work through, what they were trying to the different aspects of this that they were trying to balance to keep their other kids safe, for example. Mm -hmm. And the hard decisions they made when, you know, when there was a grind, especially, right? When this went on and on and on and, you know, relapses and, and, and the challenges of it and involvement with the, with the criminal justice system or... Um, you know, this is really hard on people that are trying to help other people. And everybody has to take care of themselves at some point, too. And you, you see that with a lot of people who are trying to help others, that taking care of yourself and protecting yourself is also an important piece. We also learned, I mean, and, and people do know from the opioid crisis, I think by now, that there are, there's a missing generation. There's a lot of incarcerated people, and there are a lot of dead people. Um, and, you know, uh, grandparents raising their grandkids, kind of relearning parenting again, um, stigma against kids being raised by grandparents in certain counties around here in Ohio. We've heard those stories. You know, any number of um, sort of ancillary thing, you know, conditions have arisen out of this core thing, which is the, the desperation of addiction. You know, you mentioned the deaths and, and uh, the coronavirus has claimed more than 20,000 in Ohio. 7,000 of those were living in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And I would think in, in the last few years that the drug overdose death total is probably around 20,000 over the last six, eight years in Ohio. Yeah, so we had 5,000 in 2020, according to right. official numbers. Uh, you know, and that's obviously, you know, just a couple of years of that and, you, and you're at the same level. So, yeah, and, and look, you can, you can look at any kind of health issue in Ohio, and uh, we don't rank well in many of them. You know, look at um, you know, diabetes, for example, or, or something like that. So we, we have a lot of reckoning to do with how we think about health, how we think about public health, um, the kind of where we put our money uh, in general, and, and 
COVID has raised a bunch of those issues for us once again. And again, as I mentioned, has also reminded us that even when we make progress, for example, our infant mortality rate is, is slightly better, right, this year, but the disparities between white and black and brown are, are intensifying in many cases. So we need to look at this from a bunch of different uh, perspectives each time and make sure we don't get kind of too high on ourselves when we think, you know, oh, we've got this or we've done something so good. Uh, we, we need to keep our head to the, to the ground. Where do you think the, the biggest exit from it lies? Is it, is it cutting off the supply uh, at the borders or is it behavioral uh, changes? You know, what is it? Well, a couple things. I mean, you know, people like me who work in health policy and public health, you know, I mean, I advocate harm reduction, as it's called, which is, you know, we need to make sure we can help people. We need to save lives. So getting naloxone to every corner of our state is still a priority. Making sure that we can revive people when they're in an overdose so that they have a chance to live. It's the, it's the most basic thing we can do. Um, at the same time, from a policy perspective, certainly cutting off the supply is, is, is important. But, you know, supply and demand um, will, you know, Americans love to talk about capitalism. Supply and demand, you know, seem to always win. So we need to make sure that we are helping people first and foremost. We are reducing the isolation and the connectivity in people's lives, getting people into treatment wherever they live in whatever way they want to live. So, for example, a lot of our support systems in Ohio are faith-based. Well, what about people who, for whom faith is, is not something that is a, bit, is a part of their life? We need to make sure that we have resources for them too. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we need to come at it from many different perspectives, and there's no kind of spigot you can turn off on this. Talking with Dan Skinner, health policy professor at Ohio University's Medical School in Dublin, and he's also the author of Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. Uh, anything else you'd like to add, Dan? No, just that, you know, uh, I, well, I, I guess, yes, which is um, where we were in, in 2019 before COVID. Um, you know, we have only started to understand the effects of what COVID has done to other issues that uh, we were already wrestling with. And it's just really important for us to regain our focus. We have to be willing to do multiple things at once. But the big master frame here is just supporting and funding public health. Our public health professionals have been true heroes through COVID, but we've also learned that we, if, we, if we want this, the outcomes we want, then we need to make sure we actually put the pieces in place, whether it's financial or other. Any online sources you want to cite either for your book or for just general information? Well, of course, I would love it if people would read the book that Berkeley and I co-edited. Like, I'm, I'm a huge fan of our local newspapers, frankly. Um, the Columbus Dispatch is, is a, has wonderful beat writers that are, are focusing on this issue. People should subscribe to their local papers. Um, and, you know, really, I have a podcast, too, which is Prognosis Ohio. We talk about these issues quite often. Um, it's a WCBE-affiliated podcast. We just need the conversations to come out. We need, that's how you get rid of the stigma. That's how you bring more people out of the woodwork so they can talk about the needs that they have in their communities. And um, I, I think that, you know, if you just pay attention to local newspapers and poke around a little bit, um, th there's more than enough being talked about out there for everybody. And good information. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. You have a great day. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. 
and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I want to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Karina Nova from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. budget is signed with a lot attached to it. We'll review all the investments made. College athletes will be making money after an executive order from the governor. How DeWine and players agents feel about the new law. A rapid bus service from Dublin to the Arena District. The cost and benefits of this planned transit system. What you invest in is what you value. This budget reflects what we value. Governor DeWine says the new state budget will value the state's children, putting millions toward helping kids who've been victimized because of household drug abuse, finding homes for children in foster care, expanding CPS services across the state, and funding public school services. Thank you for joining us for Face the State. I'm Karina Nova in for Tracy Townsend. Another big line item in the 2022-23 budget, expanding broadband access. After the pandemic highlighted just how important Internet access is to kids and working adults, the state's investing $250 million to expand broadband for the state. But what exactly does that mean to Ohioans? And once people do get access to Internet, will they be able to afford it? 10TV's Gabriela Garcia has the answers from the state. The state says one million Ohioans do not have high-speed Internet. Lieutenant Governor John Husted says he's happy about putting money toward a solution for broadband access. And it is an essential element of living in modern society. Husted says the state will work with schools, nonprofits, Internet service providers, and other organizations to build the infrastructure to get people online. And he says a lot of the infrastructure is already out there. We could put it on the top of light poles at football stadiums or things like that that communities already have in place. These will be antennas that will be mounted on existing infrastructure. It will be largely Um, unnoticeable and recognizable for most people. But once the access is there, how noticeable will the price be for Ohioans that get this new broadband? 
The lieutenant governor says new equipment for some people might cost up to $500 initially, then a monthly fee of $100. But he says the state's working to find more affordable solutions. We've run successful pilot projects in both rural and urban Ohio where we can provide people with with high-quality Internet service for $17 a month. Husted says he can't promise that price for everyone, but he's working with the newly allocated money with organizations to keep prices down. This money will not solve the whole problem, but it is important if we want to have an inclusive recovery in a society where everybody has opportunity, broadband is an essential element of that. In Columbus, Gabriela Garcia, 10TV News. Husted says his efforts to get the budget money out the door started as soon as the budget was signed. Continuing conversations with Internet service providers, nonprofits and other organizations to get accessible and affordable Internet to Ohioans. Ohio lawmakers are praising the new budget as one that will put more money in your pocket. The state is giving all Ohioans a 3% income tax cut, but how much money will you really save? 10TV's Kevin Landers breaks it down for us. There's good news, Ohio. Everyone is getting an income tax cut. More money in your pocket, right? Yes, but it's not what you might think. Broadly speaking, people in the middle People making between 42 and 65,000 on average will save 47. The Ohio legislature approved the tax cut because it wanted to make Ohio more competitive with the states that have no income tax. Some of those fastest growing states are Texas and Florida. Guess what? Texas and Florida have a zero uh, income tax. But instead of raising taxes on the wealthy, those high earners are getting a tax break too. I think this is. Uh, a really uh, unfortunate and uh, wrong-headed move uh, by the General Assembly. So here's how it breaks down. If you earn $50,000, you're getting $34 back from the state, $44 if you earn $60,000, and if you earn $100,000, you get $85 back. Those who earn under $25,000 pay no income tax, which the state says impacts about 115,000 Ohioans. It is important that, uh, that Ohioans will be able to keep more of what they earn, but it's really important for us to continue to be competitive uh, across the country. Are we competitive despite decades of tax cuts? Ohio lost population and a congressional seat. The median average salary in Ohio is below the national average. And it has not resulted in a vibrant economy that's outdoing the rest of the country. By passing an income tax cut, Ohio is giving back $1.7 billion. Supporters say that's good government. Critics say that money should be supporting critical needs in the state. Just because we have money doesn't mean we should spend money. We've had a huge debate about school funding. Think of how much that could do for our public schools, for making our colleges more affordable. That was Kevin Landers reporting. In addition to giving a 3% income tax cut, the state also eliminated the top income tax bracket for the wealthy, which is now below 4%. Among other items passed in Ohio's $75 billion budget, the state will change the way schools are funded. Incomes and house values will now help determine how much local school districts can cover on their own. There was a big investment for children in southeast Ohio as part of the new budget. The Appalachian Children's Coalition confirms they will receive $2.5 million. 
That group formed at the start of the pandemic to give a voice to families in the region. They tell us the money will be used for training and keeping child mental health workers. Robin Burrow, Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow's mom, is on the board of that organization. She says access to resources is the biggest need. We really are uh, excited to be able to help provide the funding to um, increase those providers, bring them in, give them the education that they need, and then to also maintain and sustain them in the region for a longer period of time. The coalition hopes this money will allow for as many as 300 providers throughout the region. They say this will help address the child-to-provider ratio. Governor DeWine signed a bill that will give billions of dollars toward helping Ohio recover. The governor signed House Bill 168. It invests $2.2 billion from American Rescue Plan funding to local economic recovery efforts, improvements to Ohio's pediatric health care facilities, and improvements to water and sewer infrastructure. Governor DeWine says this is a very important bill that passed the legislature. When we talked about this money coming in from the federal government, uh, we said that this is one-time money that should be spent in a one-time fashion. The money that we are spending uh, does that. The bill also gives funding so the state can repay Ohio's loan to pay unemployment benefits during the pandemic. Governor Mike DeWine signed an executive order allowing college athletes in Ohio to profit off of the use of their name, image, and likeness. Schools and universities cannot punish or limit student-athletes' participation for earning compensation. Governor DeWine said this measure is necessary to attract the best talent to the state. Without these guidelines, Ohio colleges and universities will have a harder time attracting student-athletes who could go elsewhere who could go elsewhere to have a chance to make money on their name, image, and likeness. There are some limits. Athletes cannot endorse casinos, gaming, or makers of controlled substances. One key part of NIL is the ability for student-athletes to hire agents to help them manage their money. One agent we spoke to says he's glad this has finally been approved for athletes in Ohio. It's a measure that's frankly long overdue to allow um, college athletes to benefit and share in revenue streams that are in large part a result of their talents and skills. NIL went into effect in Ohio and 17 other states nationwide. We know that this safety, this roadway plan is not going to work. A Columbus neighborhood is on edge and upset over road changes city council wants to make. They made their voices heard loud and clear. Our Angela Reigert shows us why there's debate on the proposal on Little Turtle Way. With each car that passes, their passion persists. We want to save what we have. Pam Zink has lived here for 19 years. Oh, we love it here. Everyone loves this community. There's longtime residents. They like walking and they like the appearance and they don't want too many people crammed in one area. And that's what's happening. 
proposed road project in Little Turtle is causing a big problem. The city of Columbus wants to combine the north and southbound lanes of Little Turtle Way into one two-way road between Blue Jacket Road and the westbound ramp at 161. They're also calling for a roundabout at Little Turtle Way and Long Rifle Road. The city thinks this will improve traffic and reduce congestion. We live here. We know the roadway program is not going to work. Darlene Slater is the president of the Little Turtle Civic Association. Yes, I mean, our roadway needs to be repaired, just renovated, re, uh, repaved, but we don't need this monumental change. Nobody in this community needs it or wants it. Not only are residents concerned about traffic and safety, but about how the landscape will look. Nobody wants less green space. We want to maintain what we have. We don't want to lose this. This is very meaningful to us. This is our home. I hope they would have, you know, a, a change of heart on this. And I think the sign pretty much says it all. Reporting in Columbus, Angela Rigard. 10 TV News. According to the city's website, this project would cost more than $5 million. Unemployment benefits have been a safety clutch for many during the pandemic, and that's forcing some to look at the job boards. We'll hear from business owners to see if there's been an increase in job applications. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. If you came across a child struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? Where they speak? Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America. 200 food banks strong. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Karina Nova, courtesy of 10TV. Unemployment benefits have been a safety clutch for many during the pandemic, but the Federal Pandemic Unemployment Compensation Program ended. That means no more $300 a week payments. Since that extra money has tapped out, the question is, how will this impact businesses and people applying for open jobs? 10TV's Richard Solomon asked a couple of businesses to find out what they think. Baking the perfect cake is kind of like owning a business. Just a dab of icing on the cake board, place a layer on, make sure it's super level. Both take patience and helping hands. These are the type of things that excite me. So I enjoy this. This was my dream. This is Juana Williams' baby, Jay's sweet treats and wedding cakes. She opened it during the pandemic and it's still standing. But she's now faced with another challenge. So we're in desperate need of employees. So right now we have four. We did recently hire three. Williams says she and others have to sometimes work on off days to keep up with the orders. They are getting applicants, but they're running across unrealistic demands with wages. We start um, cake decorators at about the 15, 15, 50 mark, you know, depending on experience. Um, I interviewed a girl last week who was asking for 25 an hour. We can't do that and keep our doors open. And this is a problem other businesses have been experiencing as well for the last few months. Ron Jordan, owner of Hen Quarters, says 
Once health orders dropped, he was able to hire about 40 new employees. But they only kept about half of that because the quality suffered. There were seasoned veterans that have been in this game for a long time. I think a lot of them took that time during COVID, you know, when they were getting the extended unemployment benefits to go and get training and certifications in other fields. I emailed Thomas Betty with the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. I wanted to know if more places are seeing more applicants because unemployment benefits ran out. He emailed back saying right now it's too early to tell. But he did say Ohioans filed 12,953 initial traditional unemployment claims last week. That's nearly 3,000 less than the week before. Williams, optimistic those numbers will continue to decline and more helping hands come through her doors. We're hoping that they start to file in and and want to um, be hired because we certainly are going to hire them. And the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services tells me they won't have the post data on this issue until August. For now, reporting in Columbus, I'm 10 TV's Richard Solomon. All right, Richard, thank you. Columbus City Council passed partial funding for a proposed Northwest Corridor Rapid Bus Service. 10 TV's Clay Gordon looks at what this might look like here in the capital city. City Council approved an initial $750,000 to turn Olentangy River Road and the surrounding roadways into the Northwest Corridor, a rapid transit bus system connecting the Arena District and OSU to parts of Dublin. So why this artery kind of is the basis of this study? Yeah, well, the Northwest Corridor is an essential corridor really for job creation, job development, uh, and people. Council is expected to reroute a total of $4.5 million over the next few months for the corridor. According to a regional transit study in the Northwest Corridor, more than 187,000 people are employed within the proposed routes. 21% in the area earn less than $1,300 a month. We also know that nearly, uh, that most of, the majority of Coda's ridership makes less than $25,000 a year. More than 50% of the Coda's ridership are African American. So when we think about an equity agenda, we're talking about making sure that uh, people of color are not sitting in traffic longer uh, as they try to get to that job uh, on the other side of town. Cleveland already has a 7.1-mile heavy bus rapid transit system in place along Euclid Avenue. Travel time uh, decreased by about 25%, and the ridership increased initially about 40%, but then it peaked at about 60%. It was developed more than 12 years ago, and it came with a $200 million price tag. In the 10-year period from 2008 to 2018, we documented over $9 billion of construction value that happened in that 7.1-mile corridor. Cleveland also has a light addition, similar to the system proposed here in Columbus. It was $20 million. Council President Shannon Hardin says these express buses will have its own designated lanes and would connect with infrastructure already in place. Coda bus routes, walking and biking paths, and greenways. We know that everybody, regardless of what your economic bracket is and regardless of what your skin color, what zip code you live in, want to be able to get uh, from one side of town to the other uh, in an easier way. An easier way as traffic is expected to increase over the next few years. In Columbus, Clay Gordon, 10TV News. Hardin says now is the time for those in the community to voice their suggestions on the project. The same framework is also underway on the east-west corridor, which includes West Broad and East Main Streets. For more information, visit linkuscolumbus.com slash northwest.
As violence in Columbus grows, City Council unveiled a plan to provide public safety while also reforming it. In the summer and fall of last year, Columbus City Council passed a series of legislative packages which began the process to reimagine public safety. City Council President Shannon Hardin talked about the plan's third step. Reform isn't about being anti-police. It's about creating a trustworthy public safety system that keeps us all safe. Officers and, re and residents of all races. When I visited the academy a few weeks ago, I was proud to sit with one of the most diverse classes in years. I listened to their stories. They know that what they're walking into. They don't think our department is perfect and they want to make it better. Some elements of the city council's proposal will be advanced in July, while others will be brought forward this fall after their legis legislative recess. Eight decades ago, young men in our country received a letter from the government telling them their country needed them to go off to war. During World War II, one of those men was Robert Waltz of Newark. This past week, at the age of 98 years old, he was laid to rest. 10TV's Kevin Landers explains how this member of the greatest generation survived and, in doing so, devoted his life to help others. It's a celebration, you know, in 98 years, he lived a full life. The haunting sound of a single trumpet announces the passing of another World War II veteran, this time Sergeant Robert Walls, U.S. Army, a man his stepson called a hero and a true patriot. Buddy, if that flag was there, that hat came off and the salute came up. Walls survived the 1944 storming of Omaha Beach. 34,000 soldiers arrived, 2,400 didn't make it. He was armed with a bazooka and two shells along with his other gear. And he said, you know, we thought that we'd walk out and hit, you know, hit sand and walk up. And they were in water over their heads. Eight feet of water. Walls told him he walked on the ocean floor until he could come up for air. He was the only man on his boat that survived. It's one of the few stories he told his family. To relive the nightmare, they say, was too much. Well, he would never watch Private Ryan. That was just too real for him. When the U.S. had beaten back the Germans, Walls recalled how thankful the French were. He says, those women were just coming up and kissing all of us. He said, I had so much lipstick on my face. Walls was honored with five bronze stars and a purple heart for his military service. Today, the country honored his service once again by draping his coffin with the American flag, then folding it 13 times before handing it to his family. It's been 77 years since those 19-year-old soldiers stormed that bloody beach in Normandy. The family says Walls would tell people he wasn't a hero. It was the families left behind. And so oftentimes he would say, you know, you, you have to remember the heroes that were here at home. The factory workers that supplied us, the wives that stayed at home, you know, and waited for us. And his biggest thing was, as he said, all the guys that didn't come back. That would be something that would get him emotional. In Clintonville, Kevin Landers, 10TV News. After the war, Walls worked for Kroger for nearly 50 years. He helped the company open nearly every store in Columbus, earning him the nickname Mr. Kroger. Thank you all so much for being here with us today. And remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we here at Face the State are here for you.
That's again Karina Nova, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. The thought of my sons growing up without me inspired me to quit smoking. I talked to my doctors and then I threw away all my cigarettes, ashtrays, and lighters. I started exercising instead of smoking. Getting support from friends online kept me on track. Staying away from alcohol when I was first quitting was key. Instead of smoking after I ate, I'd get up and take a walk. I missed having a cigarette in my hand, so I'd hold a pen or a straw, anything. Until I knew I wouldn't give in to temptation, I spent more time with my friends who didn't smoke. I went to places that were smoke-free. I didn't stay quit the very first time I tried. I kept on trying, and I learned something each time. Do whatever it takes. No matter how many times it takes. I quit. I quit. I quit. We did it. So can you. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is David Monder, who is the Director of Community Services for Prevent Blindness Ohio. How are you? Great. How are you doing, Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about Prevent Blindness Ohio. Absolutely. Uh, Prevent Blindness Ohio was founded in 1957, and our mission is very straightforward and simple, to prevent blindness and preserve sight. Uh, We serve all 88 counties and have offices located in Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Toledo, and Dayton. And our goal is to simply prevent the 50% of vision loss that is needless and help all Ohioans enjoy good sight for life. We are a 501c3 volunteer-driven public health charity. Boy, what a difference uh, from 1957 to today. You think about, uh, obviously, though, blindness is still every bit as debilitating as it was then, but at least it seems that there are a few more tools available to people to help them out. Absolutely. That is that is quite true. And we uh, carry out our mission uh, primarily through um, advocacy, education, and as I'm sure we'll talk about a little more here, uh, early detection, which is the key to uh, reversing vision loss and to preventing vision loss in, in so many ways. And before we get into that, uh, how has your agency been faring during the pandemic? What's been going on? Oh, actually, we've been, uh, all all systems go, operations as normal. Um, we, like everyone else, uh, were thrust into truly unique times when the pandemic hit. And we, uh, uh, credit to our board, staff, and our uh, huge uh, number of volunteers throughout the state, we quickly pivoted and took um, all of our services, uh, a large number of which involve uh vision screening trainings that we uh, provide for uh, adult vision screeners and children's vision screeners. We move them from an in-person format to a virtual and live virtual format. So we haven't missed a beat in the provision of our services. And in fact, in many ways, uh, if you look for the silver lining during these times, uh, these new virtual modalities have enabled us to even reach more Ohioans and train even more folks to be vision screeners because we're truly able to reach all corners of our great state. 
Now, that's excellent. You highlight uh, various types of uh, vision problems. Tell us about some of them. Well, uh, I'll start with age-related macular degeneration, which is often called AMD. It's a, a leading cause of vision loss in the United States. And um, estimates are that more than 2.2 million Americans, including uh, almost 90,000 Ohioans, age 50 and over, have AMD in 2020. And that number is expected to rapidly increase to 4.4 million Americans by 2050. AMD is basically, uh, it's an eye disease uh, that affects the central vision and may occur in one or both eyes. And it affects the uh, part of the back of the eye that's called the macula, which is the central part of the retina. And when AMD damages the macula, the center part of a person's vision may become blurred or wavy, and a blind spot may develop. Does it start out very subtly? Yes, it can come, it can come very subtly. In fact, when, it, when you think of the symptoms of AMD, um, there's some regular common sense ones, blurred vision, central vision, shadows or dark or empty spots, or distorted wavy effect of straight lines, trouble discerning colors and difficulty going from bright to low light. But what's a really key part here is, in many cases, uh, there, there are no symptoms, uh, at least not until the disease uh, progresses. So what that really highlights, Dave, is how essential it is uh, to have a regular comprehensive eye examination by uh, an eye care professional who can look for the early signs of A and B and they can check for um, the buildup of, of drusen, uh, which basically um, these are um, small yellow deposits which form under the retina, and they can grow in size and stop the flow of nutrients to the retina, which uh, basically uh, result in the retinal cells and the macula that process light end up dying, and that causes that, that vision to become blurred and it usually is worsened slowly. So an uh, eye care professional can catch the buildup of drusen, um, an increase of retinal blood vessels, or a dramatic, dramatic decrease in visual acuity. And many people re don't realize that they have AMD uh, until their vision is very blurry. So having regular routine eye examinations with an eye care professional are essential. Talking with David Monder, he's Director of Community Services for Prevent Blindness Ohio. Is there any way to avoid it? Well, I, the first key step is obviously um, to know, uh, to, again, to get your comprehensive eye, eye exams regularly. Uh, there are, um, you know, certainly certain lifestyle factors that make someone more susceptible uh, to get AMD. Um, obviously, smoking. People who smoke are, on average, you know, two to three times more likely to get AMD because smoking has a toxic effect on the retina. Um, obesity can impact progression uh, and the development of AMD and other cardiovascular issues such as hypertension and high cholesterol. And sunlight exposure of uh, five hours or more per day, uh, for instance, in teens, um, leads to more development of drusen earlier and makes them more susceptible. So those are certain lifestyle uh, changes and, and healthy habits one can practice to help reduce uh, the possibility. And what about uh, low vision? Uh, what does that encompass? In Ohio, we have roughly uh, 180,000 individuals with visual impairment or blindness, and low vision is vision loss that cannot be corrected with glasses, contacts, or surgery. Uh, it can include blind spots, poor night vision, and blurry sight. 
the most important thing is uh, we do have low vision aids that can help uh, individuals stay independent. There's also special training, um, which is commonly referred to as vision rehabilitation. Uh, that can provide skills for living with low vision. And a low vision specialist can help determine the right combination of aids for every individual's needs. And when I say low vision aids, that can include things such as magnifying glasses, screens and stands, um, large print newspapers, magazines and books, um, um, telescopic lenses, and as well as computer and tablets. There are a lot of low vision aid resources that are available out there and that we hope individuals will utilize. They can find a lot of them on Prevent Blindness's uh, website, which is www.tbohio.org. I remember decades ago when more things became uh, available with large print or even, you know, phones with bigger buttons, things like that. You know, when you think back about how difficult it must have been before some of that stuff came out, uh, how far we've come. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. There's so much available, and the challenge in many cases is connecting the individual that needs these resources with them and having them communicate. And often, I think one of the major impediments sometimes is, again, even those that have a low vision, um, there can sometimes be just a sense of there's nothing that can be done about it because, you know, they've been told that, oh, there, there's, there isn't a pair of glasses that can fix this. There's no surgery, no, no way that we can, you know, re- completely reverse this. But there are so many different resources that are available that is, if one can, you know, you know hopeful, investigate, and and advocate against the low vision specialist. Uh, find their support groups out there. There are tons of different resources that are available, including uh, Prevent Blindness has a no cost living well with low vision online resource uh, that provides uh, just a plethora of useful tools, including a self help guide uh, to non visual skills, uh, workbook, a guide to caring for the visually impaired. We really encourage folks to visit our website or they can call us at 800-301-2020, and we can help connect them with these resources. As you said, Dave, they're available. We've made some amazing strides in in the last several years. We just have to connect people with the resources that are available for them. If individuals go to lowvision.preventblindness.org, they can find tons of resources on technology products, doctor searches, uh, self-help resources, and financial assistance that's available. I see that you have a vision care outreach program that can help uh, low-income folks get eyeglasses. Absolutely. We have, we're, we're very blessed to have a, uh, a significant number of partner agencies throughout the state, ranging from schools to uh, social services organizations, uh, all of whom uh, they refer their clients to who they see to our program. And we can provide, uh, they're financially qualifying, you mentioned uh, 200% of the poverty level. Uh, we can provide um, free comprehensive eye examinations and free eyeglasses to individuals. So this is, you know, us really trying to make sure that we can hit the, all the, the, the underserved and the underinsured throughout our state and give them what basically, if you think about it, I mean, how do you perform daily tasks if you can't see? So having an eye exam to catch, uh, measure and detect eye diseases and to ensure that your vision is healthy and then having the resources to get, you know, eye glasses and other important resources, it's just an absolute necessity. So we're very happy to be able to provide assistance through that BCO program. 
Talking with David Monder, Director of Community Services for Prevent Blindness Ohio. David, what's the Prevent Blindness Ohio website again? Yes, it is www.p as in Paul, p as in boy, O-H-I-O dot O-R-G. Or they can con- anyone with questions can contact our office at 800-301-2020. I'd love to help you. would love to help you out any way we can. Outstanding. David Monder again, uh, uh, Director of Community Services, Prevent Blindness Ohio. Thanks so much for the information. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that you've given me the opportunity for us to share some resources. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.